You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as is his want and um, habit, um, ITK analyst David Leach. How are you, David? Giles, I'm very well. I trust all our listeners are enjoying the podcast and I'm hoping they're going to uh, have a quite educational, interesting experience with our special guest today. Yes, indeed. Look, and that um, prompts me to welcome Bruce Miller. Bruce is the principal consultant and a power systems expert um, with Advision, which is a um, a subsidiary of well of Wally. Um, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Look, we've invited you on, Bruce, because um, you've written some quite um, interesting articles about obscure subjects, or what many people would consider to be obscure subjects in the line of frequency and inertia and voltage and system strength and marginal loss factors and things like that. But they're actually um, all quite important and quite vital elements of the grid, and particularly as we're going through this uh, clean energy transition. We've been very fortunate to actually republish some of those articles, including some with the evocative names, such as why managing Australia's grid is like driving a car with a loose steering wheel. Now, we're very keen on going into depth in some of those subjects as we go along. But tell me, Bruce, what, what's, what's, um, what's inspiring you to write these articles? Because you seem to be going against the conventional wisdom in many of your articles and you seem to be sounding a warning into the way that we're managing the grid and particularly the managing this transition. Is there, is there an overall theme here? I I don't think so. I've, I tend to choose the, choose, the, choose the subjects for the articles based on what I'm finding interesting at the time. Um, I suppose the frequency issue first came up because I had a, a chance discussion with uh, uh, Kate Summers of um, Pacific Hydro, and uh, was surprised to learn that our frequency control was was nowhere near as good as it was in pre-NEM days. And I did some independent investigations, and I, I agreed with Kate on that. And then I sort of started digging in a little bit deeper into the reasons why that might be the case. Frequency thing was largely about inertia, and in fact, you wrote an, um, uh, you wrote a very good article which we were lucky to republish. Um, inertia and power system, and we don't actually need that much. Maybe you can just sort of sum up for our listeners roughly what was um, what you were talking about there, and then maybe perhaps we can go into some of your other concerns about sort of power system security, which you've written um, more recently. Um, but just tell us roughly about inertia, because we hear a lot about it, you know, when we're talking about adding wind and solar and battery storage and things like that, you know, how much inertia do we need? So what, what, was, what was your overall concern there? Okay. Uh, my main concern was just a lack of physical understanding of what's happening in the physics required. So... The analogy I drew is that um, controlling the, the frequency of the power system is, is equivalent to controlling the speed of a vehicle. And inertia is like the weight of a vehicle. Or, uh, so if you compare controlling the speed of a semi-trailer compared to controlling the speed of a motorcycle, it's actually easier because the motorcycle is lighter to control the speed of the motorcycle. 
and you're using the throttle controls on the motorcycle to control its speed. And that has a direct relationship to the governor controls that you have on uh, a power system generator. And um, in actual fact, in, if, you, if you're trying to control the speed and regulate the speed within tight bounds, it's actually easy to control the system if the system is lighter rather than if the system is heavier. So this, this idea that we need more inertia on the system is incorrect in many cases. Why is it then not everyone, does everyone agree with you or is there some debate about this and um, why are you needing to sort of say things like this? Um, is it because the uh, market regulators and operators are going another way? There is, um, I think the issue has been that for particular events, inertia is quite handy and a good example of that is when you lose part of the system so it becomes islanded from the main system and you have a large power hit on that system uh, which is like suddenly suddenly losing the trailer perhaps on your your um, your semi trailer uh, then having a heavier vehicle will limit the rate of change of speed or the rate of change of frequency that you get and that gives then enough time for things like load shedding schemes and everything to operate. Um, but we're now sort of reaching a situation now where we can get very fast control systems and they can respond very quickly. And so the ability to, uh, well, the need to have large inertia is not a big issue. And, and, and so as we're sort of going along um, with the, um, and, and trying to sort of add in wind and solar plants then, and one of the, one of the and, and batteries, one of the key thing here, key things here was, you know, can we afford to have that and, and, and keep frequency up? So your argument then is that we can, because it's just as good to have a, a lighter vehicle as, as, as you describe it. Yes. And, and we had a very good um, practical example of that just recently. Uh, well, when I say recently, back in August, when we lost uh, the Q&I interconnector between New South Wales and Queensland, and then eight seconds later, we lost the, the interconnector between South Australia and Victoria. Now, the, just looking at Q&I, for example, we, at the time, uh, there was a large export from Queensland into New South Wales. We lost the interconnector because of lightning strikes. Now, you can't stop lightning strikes. They're going to happen on the system. We're going to lose interconnectors from time to time. The frequency in Queensland went up very high as a result of that loss of load because it lost New South Wales. Uh, and we we were actually at a reasonable risk of losing Queensland for that event. But one of the th one of the things that saved Queensland was that the the inverters of many of the solar plant backed off quite quickly in their power output, which then uh, brought the frequency under control. Didn't take the frequency too high. Um, whereas. The, the old mechanical governors on the coal plants virtually didn't respond at all. Yes, there's been some considerable concern about the delay in the response of the um, governor controls of these old thermal plants and the fact that they've been allowed to sort of, I'm not too sure whether wither away is quite the right word, but they're certainly not responding in the way that many presume that they would or could. Yes, that's right. And so that's equivalent to driving your, your semi-trailer down the road 
and um, a kangaroo jumping out in front and not taking your foot off the accelerator and putting it on the brake, but just continuing on the accelerator. Oh, are we to expect then that the solar plants will be avoiding that kangaroo? Yes, they will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank yes. goodness for that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, I'm not too sure if we Hi, Bruce, can you oh, hear me? Good, yes, I'm glad, yes, David. Yes. Off you go, David. Oh, sorry. Sorry. That's, uh, I wanted to just move on a little bit, if I could, uh, and talk a little bit about the... Um, so we've talked about frequency, but I think the issue that many of the... As we move to a higher uh, percentage of variable renewable energy, it's more... It's as much about system strength and um, I guess a concept that I've been trying to learn about reactive power um, uh, that spinning generators provide that, um, as I understand it, the inverters from solar farms and wind farms don't provide so easily. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, what you see in terms of system strength and uh, uh, how it's going to be supplied as the... Um, grid uh, renewable percentage increases and, and whether in your view it's been done the right way at the moment? Yes, okay. Um, I think the analogy now, now we're shifting analogies now except from vehicles on onto bridges which is what I've used before and, and system strength uh, in, in my most recent article I've described it as there's two types, there's the, the horizontal system strength that you get with a bridge which has strong girders and uh, is resistant to bending and buckling, a bit like the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Or you can have a very weak bridge like a, like a, a rope across a stream, which uh, will sag down in the middle if, if you put a weight on it. Um, that's, that, that sort of system strength you can only fix or change by changing your transmission infrastructure in some way. Generators have no impact on that sort of system strength at all. But then there's another form of system strength, which is like the, the supports for your bridge, which keep the bridge span upright. And the more supports you put under the bridge, the stronger the bridge is, because the, 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 the length of span between various supports is less. So as soon as you add a generator anywhere on the system, any type of generator, you are actually improving the system strength. You're not, you're, you can never make it weaker by adding a generator onto the system. So that, that's an important... But you do need... I was going... Sorry, but you do need a level of reactive power, don't you? And that's what I understand, yes. the synchronous uh, condensers. So I, there's this thing called the short circuit ratio, which I think from the grid's perspective is like what an individual business might call its power factor. It's the ratio of the... Uh, active power to the reactive power or something. Can, can you explain uh, why that's important? Not so much why it's important, but how as we get less spinning reserves on the system as the thermal generators close down, how the system will adapt? Uh, that's what I think I want to uh, yeah. understand a bit about. Yeah, well, if you take, if you take the, the idea of supports, the, the, the strength of the supports themselves is also important. Um, you can have wooden supports or you can have steel supports, and I suppose synchronous condensers and synchronous generators in general, uh, you, could, you could compare them, I suppose, to like steel, steel supports and uh, renewable generation, which is usually inverter connected, is, is like a wooden support for, for your bridge. So it's not as strong. Um, but if you've got more of them, it doesn't matter because you can still 
maintain system strength. Um, but if you take away a generator, so if we start decommissioning a lot of our coal plant going forward, we will weaken the system at that point. And so we will probably need to do something at that point. Um, but we don't necessarily have to do anything where we're connecting renewable plant in the system. So I understand this this rule uh, that the AMC uh, put forward, at the, uh, which now says that any new generator uh, mustn't make the system any weaker, which you're saying uh, by, by default they can't do that uh, anyway. Uh, uh, but, I mean, we can't, synchronous condensers aren't going to be the idea for a highly renewable penetrated grid, are they, surely? Won't we have to move on to a more uh, 21st sort of century concept of, I don't know, grid forming inverters or, or something that can manage voltage and frequency all at once, if I'm not talking through my arse here? <laughs> no, I don't think, I don't think you're talking through your arse at all. Um... Uh, we and we we can certainly demonstrate that that's the case. And and one one example of that is the Eskri battery, which is located on the York Peninsula in South Australia, um, near Dalrymple. Uh, that can and has operated as a grid separately from the main grid, uh, using the battery to regulate the voltage and regulate the frequency of the islanded portion of the grid, uh, so that you can demonstrate that's the case. Um, the other thing that is also the case is that we found that we've, particularly with grid forming in inverters, which are appropriately controlled, they can give you a more stable response than a synchronous condenser can. So, so I would agree. I think synchronous condensers are generally old technology. Um, they are useful in some situations to, to maintain fault level if, if that's required to keep your protection systems operating correctly. But there's usually much cheaper ways of, of doing that anyway. Can I, can I just jump in here and ask one question? I'm just going off from what you've just said. We've seen in some cases that some wind and solar farms are being required or asked or given an option to install a synchronous condenser to overcome any sort of connection issues and, and, and what have you. So is what you're saying then that if you're going to install synchronous condensers and that's the technology that you want now, even though there's probably better things, you should probably be doing that at the points where we've seen larger plant closures or coal plants but no real need to do them just because there's a new wind farm there or a solar farm there. Yes, that's correct. Yes. So I've been, I've been quite aghast at um, the requirement of some network companies uh, to, and the, and the, and the market operator to, to insist on synchronous condensers. And when I can see that there's very little, or there doesn't appear to be any technical justification for them in, in many cases. This is a major issue. What's, what's, what's going on here? Is this, is this wonky thinking by someone? <laughs> um, I, well, in my, in my opinion, um, I think there's a little bit of wonky thinking going on. Uh, I think all, with all technical issues, particularly with complex issues, uh, they need to be technically tested and and the physics needs to be well understood before proceeding. Um, another another issue which I think is a 
well, which is a related issue with the industry in general, is that a lot of faith is given to the to the mathematical modelling that we're doing. Um, and I, I'm, I'm all in favour of mathematical modelling because that's, that's what we do a lot of the time. Um, and that's that's my bread and butter. But the, the, I'm not sure about the we part there, Bruce, but go on. <laughs> okay. Um, but the, you also need to step back from your models and apply a little bit of engineering common sense often. Uh, it's very easy to be fooled by what you see on the screen. And uh, you also need to develop your physical intu intuition. And sometimes I see, I think that's a little bit lacking sometimes. Mm. And so can you tell me a little bit more about the, how the Murray Bridge thing went? Because um, I guess that's one of the first examples of a, I think that's a three megawatt system. And it also connects partly to the Wattle, uh, Wattle, Bay wind Wattle Point wind farm. Uh, are you happy with how that's turned out or what does that tell you about what has to be done for the next one of these and is there going to be a next one? Oh, I certainly hope there's going to be a next one. Um, the, uh, I, think, I think what was done on that project was correct at the time. Uh, it, was, it was aiming to try and make things as commercial as possible and so the, the amount of storage that the project used was... was was minimal compared to other battery projects in order to keep the cost down. Um, that's less of an issue now because the costs of batteries have come down quite significantly in in the last in the, you know in the couple of years that this has been in in operation, um, and that's expected to continue. Uh, the um, but the the main issues that were holding up the commissioning of that project and also the commissioning of other battery projects around the NEM and indeed the commissioning of solar farms and wind farms have been mainly modelling issues. And that to me is putting the cart before the horse a little bit because just because you're, the model that you get from your the manufacturer may not be as perfect as you want it to be, that's uh, no reflection on the equipment that's being installed. And I think uh, perhaps a little bit more emphasis on the actual equipment should, should be applied. Yes, and uh, it's probably getting a little beyond your direct knowledge, but, um, or maybe not, but as we put these new wind and solar farms and they're still being commissioned all the time, um, the inverters, should they be, I mean, is there like a new generation of inverters that kind of have these grid forming capabilities built in? Or, or you know, if you were at AEMO, uh, would you be advising, uh, you know, operators or financiers one way or another about how they should be thinking about it? Um, I think in all cases, um and the industry as a whole needs to ensure that the quality of the equipment that's installed is up to spec and and procedures and processes need to be put in place to, to ensure that that happens. Uh, I don't think that concentrating on the modelling is the best way to do that, which, is, which seems to have been what's been happening in the last well, 18, 24 months. 
Okay, and 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 then uh, I just might go on and ask about uh, frequency control services because I know that's something you, you've paid quite a bit of attention to. I think you feel that uh, in general um, customers are paying too much for frequency control. Uh, perhaps you could just talk a little bit about that and what you would do if you were running the system <laughs> to improve that situation. Okay, well, I think fundamentally we have to recognise that controlling the, free, the power system frequency is a technical issue. It's not really an economic issue. So the idea that we've got at the moment where we have um, several ancillary services markets to regulate frequency and, and provide contingency frequency response uh, is a bit silly in, in my view. Um, this is not to say that we don't need something there because there is an economic cost to providing raised, particularly raised frequency services and, and, and lower frequency services because it takes the generators off their dispatch targets in order to do so. Um, but from a straight out engineering point of view, and this is the way we used to operate the system before the NEM, we would um, specify a certain droop characteristic for, for each of the generators that would become part of their generator performance standards and that's fixed forever and doesn't change. Um, the only issue that changes is if the generator is operating flat out, it's not able to provide raised services and so it needs to be provided by some other generator. So it's, 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 it's in a sense, it's incorrect to call them frequency control services because they're really reserve services. It's, it's the reserve that the generator has to run at in order to be able to change its dispatch target in response to frequency changes, which is the economic cost. But the risk, the risk. And I'll just ask, oh, sorry. sorry, go on. But the response of the generator, sorry. the response of the generator is an engineering technical issue. And that should be just defined as, as part of its performance standard. And I'll hand back to Giles in just a second, but this brings us, I think, full circle to where we started when you said that the actual frequency range uh, that you were observing since the NEM started had actually got a lot worse and um, you, Australia didn't look very good in terms of its frequency control relative to what other countries were, I think, I, um, although you didn't say that. Yeah, uh, um, there, there's been a... Yeah, there's been a tendency to drive, particularly the regulation services, um, from the NEM dispatch engine um, instead of using the, the the general droop governor characteristics that, that a, a normal generator would have. And, and the reason we think that's happening is because if a governor is set on its droop and there is a frequency change and the generator responds to that frequency change appropriately according to its control system, uh, it's taking it off its dispatch target. And then the generator is being penalised for that because it's off its dispatch target. Um, so it's it makes sense for a generator to, in order to maintain its dispatch target, to, to detune its frequency control so it doesn't respond to frequency. And it just responds to the raise and lower signals that it gets from the, the NEMD dispatch engine. And because that's a... A system based on SCADA, it's got time delays in it, 
it's not a very effective way of controlling frequency. I mean, so we get this slow oscillation in frequency, and you can actually see it. I've, I've actually plugged a meter into the wall and, and watched the frequency go up and down. It takes about 40 seconds to go up and then 40 seconds to come down. And it just, just, just gradually goes up and down all the time in response to, to, to what the, the NEM the dispatch engine is telling it to do. Uh, which is which is not very desirable really it's like it's like driving down the road um, and just slowly moving your steering wheel from left to right all the time doesn't sound satisfactory I'm just wondering if just wondering if we can touch on two other subjects that um, I'm keen to talk about one is marginal loss factors which has become a bit of an issue in the last couple of months simply because of these changes um, what's happening to a lot of wind and solar farms is that their output is being downgraded essentially it's the sort of the difference between what they produce and what they're credited with at the other end of the line and some of them have you know suffered falls of about you know eight five ten fifteen or even twenty percent in some cases what's your assessment of what's happening here and um, are we approaching this the right way <laughs> okay um, yeah like I've never been a fan of MLFs uh, even when they were first introduced and and they and what should be borne in mind too is they they were introduced as a stopgap measure they we, we were supposed to have changed to nodal pricing by now um, and and done a more effective way yeah. And nodal pricing is essentially basically where the networks take the risk of, of the output out there. They just basically everyone sort of, they just pay for what people produce and it's up to the networks to make it as efficient as possible. Is that is that a fair summary? Uh, no, I think it's more no, the case, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more it's more pricing at the Queensland border or the or the Victorian border, isn't isn't that what a node is? Or am I got the wrong end of the stick? No, it's 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 used in the UK. So each each individual node has its own Price signal, I suppose. So, so instead of having a constant, instead of having a regional-wide pool price, we have a nodal pool price. Effectively, is my understanding of how it works in the UK. Um, even that, though, is got 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 its problems. Um, but going back to MLFs, the the main the main the, there are several issues with MLFs. One is one is it puts regional areas at a disadvantage compared to metropolitan areas because if you live in a, in a major capital city, you're guaranteed that your MLF will be close to one just by the fact of your geography. Um, whereas if you lived in a, you lived in a regional area and you put and that's where you put your solar farms and, and wind farms quite often, um, your MLF can vary all over the place depending on what the generators and the loads are doing in the regions and also what the interconnector flows are between the regions. And, and a lot of the changes that we see in MLFs in recent years, say in southern New South Wales and northern Victoria or, or southern Queensland, um, have been due to interconnected flows and got, had nothing to do with what the generations and the loads have been in those regions. And, and that makes it difficult for businesses and, and generators to, to, to plan going forward because they don't know what the price of their, their energy is going to be. And they have very little visibility over what other people are doing. So, what's the best solution here, uh, Bruce? Um, well, I think fundamentally, losses in the electrical system, to me, I think it's an electric it's a, it's an electricity industry problem that the electricity industry needs to solve. It shouldn't be a problem for 
a hospital or a power station or a smelter to be worried about because that's not their core business. They, they, and we, we see cases of that in other things that we buy. Like, like we do see different prices of petrol in different parts of cities and, and different prices of milk, but generally the price of milk and the price of petrol is pretty much the same. Uh, it doesn't vary by 50%. Um, but we're seeing that in electricity prices, and that's that to me. Uh, and we have seen uh, the, the worst case, I think, is Broken Hill, um, just where it where it is in the location of the NEM. Um, yes, indeed. Yes, about seventy percent, I think, or zero point seven. Yes, it used to have an MLF as high as one point two, because it was mainly a load. And then when we started adding generation into that region of the world. It's come right down to, I think it's about 0.8 now. So it's, it's changed by 40%. Thereabouts. Yeah, and from the economics of a solar or a wind farm, I mean, these things are done on, on the basis that they're low risk and have a very uh, low cost of capital as a result. I, I mean, I, I would just comment from a financing point of view, it's completely absurd the way that that's working. It's just putting a, a ridiculous risk onto all the future investment that's completely, it must be totally unnecessary. I can't see why the MLF can't to some extent either be fixed for a, you know, a decade or predetermined or, or whatever. Mm. But anyway. Yes, and that, that has been suggested by some of my colleagues that we, we should um, go to a system where you define the MLF for the, the lifetime of the asset and it's, it's fixed. And I think that's the way it works in Texas. Um, and then that gives you some investment, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we had we had the chap um, from the uh, Texas um, grid operator on a, um, a month or so ago and, um, and and explained that exactly that. And um, it's been interesting seeing some of the correspondence from the US from people just sort of saying, what the heck is going on down there with these MLS? We don't understand it. Um, just one other little technical decision before we sort of wrap up with a couple of general questions. Um, Voltage issues on the network and the role of um, rooftop solar. Do you, do you have, have you looked at this? Because the networks seem to be very keen in blaming rooftop solar for some of their voltage issues, but other people sort of say, well, hang on. Um, you kind of found a scapegoat here because some of your over-voltage problems um, uh, are historic and um, have really got nothing very to do with rooftop solar. And in fact, some of the over-voltage um, things usually happen mostly at night and not during the day when, uh, when rooftop solar might be to blame. Uh, yes, but and the other thing that's happened is that with rooftop solar, they tend to op they tend to set them up to operate a constant power factor, which means that they're not controlling the voltage. Uh, they're just putting out whatever reactive power that they want to produce, uh, and that would exact ex exacerbate any voltage issues that occur because of solar. Um, and there's a very easy fix for that. You just um, change that from constant power factor to, to um, partial voltage control with, with a droop characteristic and have the, have the solar inverters controlling the voltage near the terminals. That sounds relatively simple. Is that being thought of? Is that being done? <laughs> it's, it, it's, certainly, it's, certainly been, it's certainly been suggested, yes. And it's a very easy fix to do. Yes. Sounds <laughs> sound simple to you, does it, Charles? I'm not getting you to do the one on my house then. 
Oh, well, look, you know, um, look, if, if there is a bit of a theme here, Bruce, it seems to me that we, um, as we're sort of trying to deal with this transition, this clean energy transition, it seems to me that we're kind of overcomplicating things. We're finding the hardest, um, well, not in all cases, but we're finding a, a harder answer than, than, than what might be available. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would agree with that. And, and I think... I think the fundamental issue uh, within the industry has been a lack of physical, a lack of understanding of the physics involved. Um, and that I think has occurred because there's been a hollowing out of the, the engineering expertise in the industry, unfortunately, particularly in organizations like the AEMC, which, which has, which is very light on in terms of engineering. Um, Lots of economists and lawyers, I understand. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's also a, a cultural a cultural thing as well, myself, that there's been this, uh, until maybe two years ago, if you looked at the industry broadly, there was all the renewable people talked, but uh, it wasn't regarded as the mainstream culture. It's really only, I guess, since Audrey Zimmelman's been at the AEMO, that you've, you've got this vibe that, you know, we really are on a transition path. And I hope that once we all get on board with that, uh, the engineers will, as usual, come up with the good answers. Yes, well, I hope so. Um, I, I know that we have tried on, on, on occasions and we've been overridden by, by lawyers and economists, as, as you just said, Giles. <laughs> <laughs> we just... So you're looking at this transition then, Bruce. I mean, you know, look, you, you talk to a lot of people. We get a lot of feedback on our website from people who say they're power engineers and um, electricity and energy experts, and they say, well, you can't go to 100% renewables. It's just impossible. It can't be done. It's just a joke. You know, we have to have coal and gas-fired power stations. You as a power systems expert, can you just sort of reassure us that, yes, we can, or maybe as near as, near as damn it? And, and, and going back to sort of David's thing, is it really a technology challenge or is it a cultural challenge, as other people have also suggested? Um, we're trying to manage this transition. I, I think it's more of a cultural challenge than a than an engineering challenge. I think the engineering issues are solvable um, with a bit of thought and a, and um, appropriate design. Um, but um, the um, just getting those solutions out there, uh, and particularly from the regulatory environment that we're finding on the NEM at the moment. Uh, I, I don't want to criticise some of the recent rule changes that have gone through on this podcast, but um, maybe at some stage. Can you still hear me, Giles? Yes, I can. If you tell me which one to criticise, I'm <laughs> uh, quite happy to fulfil that role. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay. Clearly, okay. clearly Bruce, okay. you, you might be getting into some, some sort of icy area here, but um, but look, just just reassure listeners though that we're having this clean energy transition, and it can be done in an engineering sense um, if we get the rules, the regulations, and the culture right. Is it is is this a fair enough assessment? Yes, definitely, definitely. I've got um, uh, it. It we've already demonstrated at small scale that um, we can operate uh, with one hundred percent renewables on small scale grids. And uh, I see no theoretical reason why we can't go to large scale grids. 
in fact, in many cases, I think large-scale grids are much easier to control because, because of their size, um, the disturbances that they, they are exposed to are generally less in relation to the size of the grid. And, and part of my work, I do a lot of work on mining systems, which are isolated small-scale systems, um, 20 megawatts, 100 megawatts, that sort of size, whereas the NEM is in the thousands of megawatts, about, um, I think it's about 18 gigawatts at the moment. Um, the, when you lose a generator on a mining system, you've lost about a quarter of your generation capacity, and we, we can still design mining systems to survive, survive that. Um, if we lose a quarter of the capacity of the NEM, um, well, we've lost, uh, we, we, we would be in danger. There's a war problem. on. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, dear, Bruce. Look, um, I would love to con continue this conversation for a long time, but um, look, we've already gone almost 40 minutes and um, people have probably finished their gardening or the washing or their, their driving, wherever they're listening to the podcast. Um Thank you very much for joining us today. It's just been a fascinating discussion. It's been actually really helpful, I think, to the listeners to sort of listen to some of these things in details because we keep on hearing about things like frequency and voltage and MLFs and system strength without really understanding. And look, even though um, we don't have a deep understanding now, it's just been fascinating to get your perspective and um, and um, look forward to, um, to talking to you again sometime down the track. And uh, just, just maybe just a final question, though. Are you optimistic that we're going to get it right? Yes, yes, I think. And how much is it going to cost us to get it? <laughs> Will we get there at the lowest cost? <laughs> I, I don't know about the latter question. I think I think the time of history that we're in at the moment, I remember, remember when cars were first uh, introduced, uh, we used to have people out the front with red flags um, to, to warn the horses that the cars were coming down the road and we used to limit the cars to about five miles per hour. We, we seem to be at that stage of history. The condensers of their times. <laughs> All right, well, we should wind up there. And I guess, um, Charles, you, you no doubt want to uh, thank our, our faithful and loyal sponsors as well as our faithful and loyal listeners. And I'd like to add my thanks to, uh, to Bruce as well. It's been very helpful, very helpful indeed. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And um, to, our, to our sponsors, um, Solaray Energy and Watchers, we do thank you very much for your ongoing support and um, helping make possible um, wonderful conversations like these. So once again, thank you very much, David. And um, thank you again, um, once again, Bruce Miller from Advisian. And thanks to everyone out there. And we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatchers, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.